0: This podcast is made possible by Sage Intact and U.S. Bank.
1: Hello, this is Bill Elkin, CFO of the Interflex Group, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast.
0: This is Episode 295.
1: Almost every organization you talk to says we really do acquisition integration very well here, and then you read the papers a couple years later that then they really didn't integrate at all and so um you know there's a lot of people that say they do a lot of people that don't um but i feel good about where we are and that's why i'm candidly one of the main reasons why i'm here about the way we go about doing acquisitions the opportunity that sits in front of us and then the way we go about integrating even more important is is a, a real strength of the business we're still learning every day, but we're, we're pretty good at it here.
0: From the Middle Market Executive Digital Network, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we talk to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. This is Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Jack Walsh, CFO of Aptian an enterprise software developer that has an appetite for M&A. We'll speak to Jack about his business development career roots, his ascension into a CFO role, and his priorities as an M&A-minded finance leader. Right after these words from our sponsor. It's a question every growing business must answer. How do you scale your organization to accommodate growth while reducing risk? Sage Intac provides the instant visibility into deep operational and financial requirements that inform decision-making when scale is top of mind. By automating error-prone manual tasks and allowing your team to focus on the analysis of more accurate information, Sage Intact provides the visibility required to confidently scale your organization. Sage Intact is the only AICPA preferred provider of cloud financial management software. Hello, we're speaking with Jack Walsh, CFO of Aptian, an enterprise software solutions developer. Prior to Aptian, Jack was... uh had a number of tours of duty as a CFO inside the technology industry. Jack, welcome.
1: Uh thank you, Jack. I'm I'm happy to be here this morning.
0: So you arrived at Aptian only a short while ago, uh but we know this isn't your your first rodeo, Jack. So please take us back and share with us some of those career experiences you feel helped prepare you for a CFO role.
1: Sure. So um, I I got to include the first job that I had when I got out of school. Um, So that would be Ford Motor Company, which obviously is a huge, very structured, um, very disciplined, back in the days that I joined them anyway, a very disciplined finance organization. And finance was um, very influential in all the decisions that they made. Um, I wouldn't say always um, to a positive outcome uh, because I think it needs to be a balanced um, input uh, and when decisions are made in, in companies like that but uh, certainly very influential. It was a difficult time um, when I was with them in the in the uh, in the overall automobile industry so this was um, late 70s early 80s quite a while ago um, and so at that time they were very focused on cost controls um, and it was so big uh, of a company from a personal standpoint it's kind of hard to have an impact particularly when you're relatively new in your career um, and what I learned there certainly was that uh, different circumstances cause for call for different roles from the finance organization. Again, in those days, it was cost controls. That's a very different environment than I'm in today, but it was uh, still nevertheless a great experience to kind of learn how a well-organized, very disciplined, um, long standing, influential um, part of the business operates um, uh, back in the days of, uh, again, the late 70s and early 80s. Then the the, the next uh, – I, I went on to a, another job at MCI Communications for quite a while. But then the, the really, for me, um, the real turning point in my career and where I really got the best of experience was at IMS Health, where I was at for uh, uh, 13 years. So IMS, for anybody that doesn't know, does market research for the pharmaceutical and life sciences industry is about a $2 billion business, has recently merged together with another company called Quintiles, but back in the days that I was there in the late 70s, um, it was a very fast-growing business um, because our clients' demand for our market research was so intense, as that was a really a, the, the heyday of the pharmaceutical industry back in the late 70s. So, um, And then we faced challenges as their demand for our services started to slow down, their growth in their sales organization started to slow. Um, we ran into um, some challenging um, circumstances as to how to sustain our growth rate and and really diversify um, our our business. So uh, away a little bit from being just market research for the pharmaceutical industries. But for me personally, the the real growth opportunity here was it was for the first time I really stepped into into senior executive roles in a company, first uh, heading up IR, investor relations, and then I was the treasurer there for several years. I headed up the M&A and strategy groups and ultimately ended up running a small um, strategic growth business. So that gave me an opportunity to do things like um, I participated and really led uh, a couple of the IPO spinoffs that we had in the early days. I was responsible for banking relationships, both commercial and investment banking. We did several large debt deals. We did 42 acquisitions during my corporate development days. Um, we ultimately sold the business to private equity, another private equity company, Um, and um, so what I learned there was that uh, finance and and focus and actions need to change as the company evolves, and it was really a a dramatic change over the period of time I was there, as I mentioned, going from kind of double-digit growth rates down to single digits and ultimately looking to diversify and then um, sell the business. So a great great experience for me um, stepping into some senior roles and then since then and kind of the third area I'll point out is for the last seven years or so I've been the CFO at three different software companies of ever-increasing size the most recent one here at Aptian um, and it's a, a completely different experience where I have the the luxury and the good fortune of, of uh, kind of leading the entire finance legal and, and now at Aptian IT organization in all cases, all three different companies were were high-growth um, businesses. Where conditions in the software industry can change overnight, and so you've got to have great visibility into and headlights into into what your uh, your opportunities and challenges are that are ahead. Um, and um, I've also learned that finance in order to be successful in these kind of organizations certainly needs to be a more collaborative role than one that I had experienced in my early days at Ford, where success is really about, for me, uh, enabling and empowering and and, uh, facilitating um, the success of of my peers uh, uh, with the rest of the the leadership team and really the rest of the organization. So those are the kind of a little bit of my background and kind of what I've learned along the way.
0: It's a a very varied background relative to uh, what we would think of as the traditional uh, CFO path. You had a maybe a strong kickoff. You came out with an MBA from the University of Chicago. It, did you land at Ford after uh, your studies for your MBA degree?
1: Yeah, it was, uh, that was my first job coming out of Chicago. I'd never, i never, it was a different world back then where I sw- went straight through from undergrad at Notre Dame to University of Chicago for an MBA. So as I started at Ford, i really other than summer jobs, uh, doing construction and stuff like that. I'd never worked in the business world before I I showed up at uh, Ford up in uh, Dearborn, the first day on the job so many years ago.
0: So again, from Ford, uh, the automotive sector, to MCI, to IMS Health, a varied path, let's say, including roles in investor relations and senior business development roles. Before you step into a number of CFO roles, what type of opportunity did you see at Aptien? What was the, uh, the job you wanted to create for yourself here?
1: Sure. Um, well, I, I was introduced to uh, uh, Kim Eaton, our CEO, by a, a member of the board here who was also a board member at the company that I had previously worked at, another Vista portfolio company. Um, and I sat down with Kim and talked about the business and the challenges ahead. And what I saw was a company that had transformed itself in many ways over the course of the last couple years, um, had um, reorganized its sales and marketing organization, and at the same time um, really began to focus um, intently on acquisitions as the the primary driver of our growth. So over the course of the last um, um, two and a half years or so, the company's done seven, actually 11 acquisitions. Um, seven in the first year then then three last year and one uh, earlier this year. Um, and so um, that creates a rather unique um, situation particularly for finance in order to um, um, participate in both acquiring those businesses and um, integrating them and so um, we've been really driving our, our our growth that way. So as I stepped into that role it, there were two things that that I, I looked at that attracted me one is it's the classic Finance CFO role, which is about process and controls, compliance, focus on investor returns and the like, which are really something that that requires um, a fair amount of discipline obviously and then but the other piece of it is serving the rest of the organization and enabling them to be successful in their roles and that's where things like financial planning and analysis and and the back office functions. Are are so critical, billing and accounts payable and the like. um, For some, not necessarily the most interesting part of the CFO role, but for me in this particular um, function um, or situation where acquisitions are so important, we're really looking for those areas. I'll call them the financial ops part of our business, to really be a contributor to the the efficiencies that we're able to get out of doing acquisitions. And so. The opportunity to come in and be part of driving efficiency on the finance ops side and then really trying to provide headlights and engagement involvement in the acquisition integration and then driving the overall business at the same time was something that I found really attractive. And so um, I met with Kim in early July of this past year and started a couple weeks later um, diving in headfirst.
0: So help us to better understand Aptian's world today and its marketplace. I know it has a number of different uh, enterprise offerings uh, for corporate customers, but what would you tell us?
1: Sure. So the offerings are very diverse, and this is part of what makes the business to me so attractive. So we, we serve in the ERP space. Um, and uh, that can mean, as, as, as your listeners are going to know, a very diverse set of different types of deliverables, and we play, honestly, in all of them. Um, we've got uh, over 35 different products um, that we bring to the marketplace um, So, and a very, very diverse set of clients, anywhere from financial services to um, providing software that helps clients um, run their manufacturing floor, to back office um, systems as well as inventory control and and the like. So it's a very diverse set of product offerings and and thus a very diverse set of clients and different needs. And so um, we've been at this for a long time in terms of the the overall evolution of the company goes back um, decades um, and we've got a very loyal client base as a result serving in a, in a niche marketplace. So we don't compete with the, The multi-billion dollar ERP players, we compete in niche markets serving small, generally small to mid-sized, some very large clients, but small to mid-sized clients with very niche-oriented, specialized products that service their unique needs, and that's allowed us to be successful um, in competing um, because we have something that's unique to our clients. And once we get them on that platform, it really is the, and for many of them, it's the backbone of, of how they go about running their business. And so it's a very sticky business. It is admittedly a relatively mature marketplaces that we serve. And so um, it, it, it has the advantage of being very stable, but it also has the disadvantage, if you will, it's challenging new, new client sales are difficult because those clients are generally either going to be embedded with uh, competitors who, whom they've been with for a long time and changing is difficult, or, and this may be the bigger opportunity we have, the competition, if you will, is long um, long-standing uh, internally developed Excel spreadsheets or similar type of platforms. Again, an opportunity for us but at the same time a difficult one um, as they they've been embedded with the whatever that system is generally for quite a while and getting them to to change is is even if they see a real opportunity in moving to our platform it's difficult to convince them to make that leap because it it requires a lot of time and effort for them to to make those moves so a relatively mature marketplace the other side of the equation though is on the acquisition side there are literally thousands, tens of thousands of, of competitors in this marketplace um, who, who play in this space. And um, that creates a real acquisition opportunity for us, um, particularly in the kind of the five to oh, 30 to 40 million dollar range of revenue where these, these businesses are generally homegrown businesses, founder-owned, um, and um, we find a, 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 a almost an endless supply of acquisition targets to come in with a, a, a very – what we like to think is a best practices platform that we can bring to these acquisition targets. So as a founder determines that he or she um, wants to retire or simply needs a break and, and had enough running a business for maybe five to 15 years – we come in and acquire that business and then bring our best practices to the table and take what was a, you know, a reasonably well-run business, maybe making 10% margins. And with um, applying our best practices and our solutions and our embedded platform, we can turn them into a 30, 40 plus percent type of uh, a business margin, which is um, where we really realize the value from the acquisition.
0: Just trying to, sense of these acquisition targets because it seems they must be, in my mind, I'm guessing that they are more or less industry-specific technology companies, companies that have really gotten very focused at answering the needs of a specific type of customer uh, that and have served them over the years and sort of off the radar of... Uh, some of these much larger uh, technology competitors that are out there today, it, am I characterizing right. that correctly? Or
1: I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, and um, the the reason why then that that works so well for us is that we we serve the small to midsize market. Again, we do some large, but it's predominantly small and midsize. And so the bigger guys chasing after a a ten to twenty million dollar revenue stream deal that is niche focus that's not particularly attractive to them. Um, And so while we do have some competition as we go after these acquisitions, um, it really is in many cases very limited, and so um, very fertile turf for us to go in and and have a very high success rate in identifying, uh, reaching out to, and then closing those deals.
0: Meanwhile, as old as Aptian is, I would suspect that the move to cloud solutions has really – uh, what's the word I'm going to say? Challenge the business model. It it's had to go through an evolution of sorts. Can you tell us where it is along the uh, uh, you know the path from the uh, on-premise solution to the the cloud solutions today?
1: We are relatively well positioned for this um, today, and um, very well positioned for the longer haul because we have a fairly sizable. R&D organization um, that's about an 80-20 split between Bangalore, India, and then the, the remaining 20% that are spread out really around the world um, being, being the face of R&D, if you will, to our clients. Um, and as a result, we have a, a very large stable, if you will, of skilled um, um, uh, developers um, sitting in India and really around the world that can enable us to, to tackle challenges like moving to the cloud. Having said that, most of the acquisitions that we've done of late bring with them a, a cloud-type sol- either an exact cloud solution or a cloud-like solution um, to the marketplace. And, and on top of that, we're, we've got the ability and the intent of investing to continue to, to evolve and develop our products to be ca- cloud solutions. I believe we're about 80% Um, cloud solutions today with the balance not, But the the, the thing I would observe is that um, this is really, in this situation, in this company, it's more about us driving the cloud solution rather than clients demanding that we have a cloud solution as the driving force behind this migration. Um, These folks that have these, I'll pick one example, a manufacturing floor software solution, have had it in many cases for over 10 years And they're very comfortable with the on-premise type of solution. Um, And candidly, given that the the updates to the platform are not a every day or every month or really every year type of of situation, um, a lot of them um, are just fine with what they've got and really aren't demanding or looking for a cloud solution. Um, That's not to say that we don't need to be moving in that direction because we're, we're aware of a large number of examples where clients or or competitors or, or software players got comfortable with a non-cloud solution and then found themselves eclipsed by a a more aggressive competitor who who went in that direction. So we're acutely aware of that. We're moving in that direction, but um, I'm afraid that we, we, on the finance side have a little bit of a challenge looking for the kind of return on investment um, returns from a lot of the move to the cloud in the immediate term, because it's, the client demand just isn't quite there yet. That said, we know that we have to move in that direction, and we know that not only will, will marketplace demands required at some point, but also just from a cost-efficiency standpoint, we know we can be more cost-effective if we've got a cloud solution versus not.
0: I think that's really interesting how uh, some of the acquisition targets are actually established cloud players that help you move in that direction without upsetting your current customers that still want to reside sort of in the old path.
1: Yeah, least, but, but then the, also the truth is that a, a competitor – and to be honest, I'm not so sure that we've run into this yet, but there's a, – a, certainly if if you are let, – let's just put it – make it close to home. If you're running a software business and you see your marketplace moving in the direction of the cloud, a lot of these guys, if you're running a 10 to $15 million revenue stream business, you don't have the – investment capacity to, in, in, uh, to to drive that kind of cloud migration with any speed and arguably as that starts to pick up in our space that creates an opportunity for us because god knows we have the resources and the ability to invest and we've obviously done this before so we know what it takes to do these things and so that could create actually an additional opportunity for us on the acquisition side from a founder figuring out that he's about to get eclipsed in the next five years if he doesn't move aggressively and is a little hesitant about making that kind of investment as opposed to cashing out and letting somebody else who's more experienced handle it. So, interesting dynamics in the marketplace. But I got to tell you, in the last three jobs, um, we in all three cases we were moving to the cloud, but particularly in the electronic health record business, we just did not have the demand there to um, from our. Uh, physician practice client base to move to the cloud. They were much more comfortable keeping that very confidential data inside their four walls and not relying on somebody else to keep an eye on it for them. So,
0: so let's find out what the uh, the key metrics are for you when you want to uh, take a look under the hood and uh, understand better how Aptian is performing. What, what metrics are you looking at?
1: It's really a, a couple things. One is um, client retention. Um, and going back to late 2014, early 2015, um, the management that preceded me here made a, a really a key tactical strategic decision in moving a significant amount of the sales forces from hunting for new clients where we were getting, I'll call it okay returns, but not the kind of returns we were looking for on, in the long haul, and moving them over to focus on existing clients. In improving retention, and maybe just as important, expanding our potential for growth within those clients. I mentioned we've got 35 plus products, and we've got a lot of modules that sit on all the products that exist today that are not necessarily being used by existing clients. So, we shifted the focus back at the end of 2014 towards um, trying to improve retention and improve our expansion within existing clients. And so. Those bookings um, numbers that come in uh, come in every month, or actually every week, are a key metric that we manage our uh, and, and gauge our progress um, towards our annual planning uh, at target. So that that's one. And then the other one is on the acquisition front. We certainly set targets internally for how many acquisitions that we want to do every year. But given my experience in the past with acquisitions, I'm certainly a believer that. With all due respect to the corporate development people and the M&A people that are doing the deals, the harder part of the acquisition is actually integrating it properly and making sure that you get returns out of those, those investments that you're making um, as you ex- expected when you built the business case. So when we build business cases here, uh, we, we build almost exclusively those cases around realization of cost synergies Rather than revenue synergies, which is not to say there aren't revenue synergies from these acquisitions. We just don't bake them into our business cases as the foundation for the return on investment. And from my experience, I'd seen when you build it around revenue, that's a much riskier proposition and much harder to execute against as opposed to cost synergies. And then on the cost synergy side, we've got a really a team of people in place today in my organization and throughout the company. That are focused on uh, bringing what is increasingly our best practices around acquisition integration to the table and making sure that we do each one to the best of our ability and and realize those synergies that we built into the business case. And I want to emphasize it's not just about taking out costs. It's about applying best practices to make sure that in development, in sales and marketing, in finance, in the back office, that we're we're doing things the best way as opposed to sustaining past um, um, approaches that that may have been suboptimal. And we bring our systems and infrastructure to the table so we can monitor the performance of the business. And then we bring in um, our leadership and we'll target uh, acquired leadership to run those businesses in a more effective way going into the future. So it's going back to your original question, it's monitoring the bookings performance on the core business, the organic business, and then it's monitoring our acquisition integration performance to make sure we're achieving the the returns on those investments we wanted by bringing best practices and efficiencies um, to the table that we had built into the business case. Those are really the two key criteria that we we track I'm
0: trying to get a, a sense of the the cadence of your, your M&A activity or what you expect it to be uh, over the next 12 months? Should we expect to see multiple acquisitions?
1: Oh yeah. So we've done, as I said, 11 in the last, um, call it two, two and a half years. um, And I would expect that we would continue at that pace, if not accelerate it um, simply because we're, we're comfortable and confident that we We've got a, a process and a mechanism in place to do these things effectively. As I mentioned before, we've got almost an endless supply of opportunities, so we're, we're not struggling to find those opportunities. In most cases, we find them by investment bankers um, who have established a whole network of small and midsize and, and large in investment bankers that bring us these opportunities. So by the time it gets to us, the, the seller has pretty much decided that he or she wants to sell the business and then is typically going to be looking to move on either to some other pursuit or to retire in many cases. And so um, that's where I I see us going.
0: Wow. And the range of those companies between, you know, 5 million to to 50 million? Or is it how how would you?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I call the sweet spot is kind of that 10 to 20. But uh, it's fair to say anything in the 5 to 50 million dollar range is going to be is going to be of interest to us.
0: We now want to ask you uh, for a moment of strategic insight or an aha moment where, as a finance leader, you were able uh, to identify an opportunity or look into the future. Um, What might that have been?
1: Uh, a, A relatively recent one. Three jobs ago, I was, I think I mentioned before, I worked for an electronic health record company. Um, several years ago, and we had had a tremendous amount of success um, with tremendous growth um, um, several years ago on the back of um, government incentives. So the U.S. federal government, um, I forget what year it was, but it was around 2011-12, had provided incentives to individual physicians and practices that they would provide a, an incentive that if they got on board with a uh, government-certified EHR, electronic health record vendor software package, that they would provide them with $18,000 in that first year to comply with the data requirement input elements um, that the government was looking for. Um, With that $18,000 incentive, um, um, demand for our services exploded in in that given year. Um, And then the next year, that that incentive dropped to, I believe it was around $12,000. We expected that demand would continue at a high level, a little bit tamped down in terms of license growth, but but um, we still expected strong growth in that next year. And what we found was that, that if you didn't take advantage of the $18,000 incentive, it was much less likely that you were gonna take advantage of a $12,000 incentive. And so the aha moment was the realization that our, our forecast was not right. And then the more critical aha moment was that what had been a $15,000 or so license that we were able to charge, that we were not gonna be able to get that, to realize that type of pricing um, in the future when incentives fell below that, that amount, um, particularly given that, uh, the demand that had preceded it. Um, and so we needed to make not only changes to our outlook for growth, but we needed to make fundamental pricing changes and give serious consideration to moving from a license model to the subscription model um, uh, type of structure. Um, And in both cases, um, looking back and being critical, we didn't move fast enough. Well, one, we didn't anticipate it the way we should have, um, and that's on me. And we didn't move fast enough um, to adapt to that changing marketplace and kind of suffered the results for a little while. So the aha moment was keep your headlights on and – Boy, when you're, when you're being successful like we were being, and gosh, everybody experiences this in their career, put a critical eye to that, to that outlook every now and then and make sure that you're not uh, um, convincing yourself that, that momentum will carry you indefinitely, that when things change as fundamentally as they were in that, that industry at that moment – um, somebody in the somebody as me should have been looking at it going, I don't think that's going to continue. And what if it doesn't? What are we going to do about it so you can get out in front of it? So, and candidly being, again, self-critical, that, that's, a, that's a key role of the CFO. While everyone is high-fiving and feeling great about, great about today's performance, somebody better be in the back office thinking about what could go wrong and what do we do if it does? So I, I see that as the CFO's role.
0: So is your remedy uh, simply uh, scenario planning or what what practice would you uh, seek to address that?
1: I think it is scenario planning, uh, you know, looking at it the three ways. If if momentum continues as it has in the past, if momentum accelerates for uh, whatever reason, what do we do in that environment? And again, this, this is key, just as key to make sure as, in the CFO role, that you're looking for your future opportunities and making sure that you're adequately investing. That if things do move in a positive direction, that you can move fast enough. <clears throat> and then on the flip side, again, and this is the tougher one, um, because generally, um, folks get can get euphor- euphoric about the opportunities ahead and 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 miss the the clouds on the horizon until it's too late sometimes. And that really is where finance sits. So I, I do think. You're right, Jack that it's <clears throat> excuse me it's it's uh, scenario planning and making sure you're you're thinking through all the different alternatives and and the what ifs um, that you face
0: we've been talking to finance leaders lately about uh, the talent economy and the role they're playing in terms of uh, workforce priorities and helping uh, organizations manage and attract uh, top talent. Uh, Curious in this type of environment, where there's a lot of M and A activity, the talent challenges, of course, are perhaps magnified in some ways. And um, while you're you're managing costs, you're also trying to hold on to good people. Uh, when it comes to uh, the organization's workforce, what are your priorities as a, as a finance leader?
1: Um, well, certainly, I, I, I like to think after as long as I've been working, I. I I think I've got a fairly good grip on what my strengths and weaknesses are. So I try to uh, make sure I'm hiring people that will fit fit into my weaknesses. And I you know I'd be the first to admit we, we talked a little bit about this that uh um you know the a, a standard profile particularly in in smaller to mid-sized companies is your your CFO is a is a CPA and has done either big 4 or similar type of experience and that's not me. I I came out of grad school with a finance degree, God knows I, I had had plenty of accounting um, courses, and I've done accounting. I've had accounting roles in my career, but I still wouldn't label myself a, an accountant like someone who worked for ten years in a big four firm or something along those lines. So, and I didn't come up through the controller role. So, you got to know that when I'm hiring for that controller position, I'm looking for someone that's that's very strong, and in many ways that I can lean on heavily to. To carry me through some of my weaknesses. On the the flip side, I'm definitely a guy that when it comes to acquisitions or when it comes to uh, FP&A that's got experience and a point of view, but I'm still looking to hire strength there, which I'm not saying that I'm looking for, I I set the standard lower, but in terms of the kind of people I look for there, I kind of know what what I need and and it's more of a dynamic um, that's more stylistic than technical when I'm looking for a an FP&A guy, whereas on the accounting side, God knows, I need somebody very strong on the technical side because I just don't have that background. And then beyond that, it's more what am I looking for? I'm looking for people that are passionate about the, what they do um, and are, you know, when, when we need to, are willing to work hard and at the same time willing to, look, to work creatively and think creatively as they go about their jobs. Because again, when you're working in the kind of software business that, that I'm engaged in and you're you're dealing with companies that have double digit growth, which is what certainly I'm attracted to, you've got to, you're you're in a dynamic situation where you need to think creatively and and uh, in a very open minded fashion. And so I need hard workers who when the going gets tough are willing to work hard, but also those who will think creatively and help me avoid that mistake I just talked about going back a couple jobs ago where we missed an and a, an opportunity to to turn the ship before the market did and we missed it um, I, I like to think I hire people that are creative enough so that when when I get blinded for some reason that they won't be and, and they will challenge me so
0: when you when you do acquisitions in terms of compensation you know every every organization is different there might be uh, an acquisition uh, that you're merging into the company and their salespeople are compensated in in an entirely different way, one that would upset the uh, the status quo or how things operate. Yeah, so
1: think- uh, the, the truth is there that I have the luxury of of in those situations because our sales leadership and HR, but it, this this specific issue is more about um, um, sales collaboration and and sales leadership. They we will roll in our own acquisition and we will insert our, our CRM into the acquired asset uh, literally within three months to six, certainly six months would be long, but when, within three months, we, we've, we're running that sales organization off of our CRM and we're making informed judgments about, about what the productivity at Salesforce is and making adjustments in their focus as necessary. That's one. Two, Often, you'll see in a, a a a company that's been 15 years going from zero revenue to 15 million dollars of revenue, you'll see a fair amount of of compensation for salespeople being linked to, with all due respect, showing up to work every day and not necessarily linked directly to productivity. So, one of the things, and this is a challenge for the salespeople, the HR people, and for myself, is. We will go through a, a process where we will migrate them from a, I'll call it um, harvest the core, if you will, to grow the core um, and grow the business uh, type of incentive comp where you can make more money than you used to make if you're successful in selling, but you will make less money than you used to make if you're not successful selling. And so um, that kind of transition can be tough for some folks that, that got – Maybe a little bit too comfortable in their position and whose leadership, you know, over the last 10 years has gotten comfortable with that kind of uh, situation as well. So, number one is is bringing in our systems, and then number two, so we can evaluate performance, and then number two is crafting the the compensation um, structure so that um, those sales reps that are productive are going to make more money, and those who aren't productive will likely decide to go someplace else because they see a different, you know, their mindset is different as they approach the business.
0: So one would suspect that that approach has come a long way. What would you tell us just uh, comparing it um, to the earlier days and where it is now?
1: It's not perfect. Um, you don't always succeed in, in retaining, um, you know, all the talent that you wanted to. Um, and But I, I, I certainly like to think that with all the acquisitions I have under my belt, and certainly this organization, all the experience that we have uh, over the course of the last couple of years, and then really the experience that the leadership that came into the company had, just like me, before they joined here in the acquisition experience, I think that we've got a pretty, a very good process in place, um, not just on the sales side, but uh, and, and call it H.R., Intersection point between HR, finance, and sales on, on sales rep productivity and compensation. Um, I think we've got good experience to know what works and what doesn't work. Which is not to say that every single deal we don't learn something new and and try to circle back into our process and make it better for the next one. So um, I certainly like to think we learn from our mistakes. I I, I believe confident. I'm confident that we do here. Um, and I think you've probably interviewed enough people um, to know that almost every organization you talk to says we we really do acquisition integration very well here and then you you read the papers a couple of years later that nah, they really didn't integrate at all and so um, you know there's a lot of people that say they do a lot of people that don't um, but I feel good about where we are and that's why i'm one of the main reasons why I'm here about the way we go about doing acquisitions, the opportunity that sits in front of us, and then the way we go about integrating them, even more important, is, is a, a real strength of the business and something that uh, we're still learning every day, but we're, we're pretty good at it here.
0: Okay, we're going to move to our mentoring round where I get to ask you several quick questions intended to uh, allow you to offer advice to aspiring finance leaders. What's one thing that's exciting you about business and finance today?
1: I, I like to think, and maybe it's just me, that finance has gone from being, um, when I started and work in many ways, and this is really technology-driven in large part, it was a matter of providing the numbers and letting others make the the call. And you got to understand, I go back nearly 40 years, so it's been a while. Um, but today, you know, the, the the finance role, and it's not just the CFO role, but it's much broader than that. Part of the what excites me about the, the, the role and the team I have here is we're not we're not self-contained within finance in terms of the way we both look at the business and the services we provide. Um, my FP&A team is very much fully engaged with both the operations side of the business as well as the salespeople, and they are in many ways the go-to people when sales wants to understand what the outlook is for the quarter and how they can refine it and where the pressure points are and where the risks and opportunities are. They're really turning to, to my guys to help them understand it because of the depth of information we have and our ability to translate that information into into action um, that the the sales leadership and the operations leadership can take, so I think finance is in a better place today certainly than it was when I started my career, and even over the course of the, t- the last ten years, I see finances being more of a of a, of a fully engaged uh, part of the decision making process and and the success of running a company. Now with that comes a lot of a lot of pressure. Again, I go back to forty years ago. Finance was about controls and process and compliance and the like. Nothing wrong with that, by the way, and that still exists today. But in terms of partnering with our peers in the company and making those peers more not only more efficient but more effective at what they do and how they go about making decisions is really, I would argue, a critical element to the success of any company such that if finance is operating properly, they're really, we're really viewed as a partner rather than somebody that comes in and keeps the books and then provides raw data that, that then a a sales leader or an operations leader has got to crunch through to figure out what they need to do. So that's honestly what excites me every day. And and that may be going back to my roots as a, I spent the bulk of my career, the first 20 years of my career in the kind of the financial planning and analysis role. And God knows I've seen that evolve from a kinda of almost like a taskmaster type of role to really being a collaborative um, partner with all the leaders in the company.
0: Might you not have become a CFO? It seems as though your uh, very career could have led you down multiple uh, different career paths. Um, but did you aspire always uh, to become a CFO?
1: Um, certainly, I like, I measured my career by, um, assuming more and more responsibility as I worked up the chain of command. Um, and I got to tell you, having hit the CFO spot, it would be tough for me to go back to anything less, if for no other reason than just because of the diversity of, of, the, of the challenges that I have every day and the problems that I face and the, and the, and the ability to work with um, you know, the, uh, the breadth of, of leadership in the company is certainly more fulfilling when you've got the diversity of tasks that I've got in front of me. Having said that, you know there's nothing wrong with, and I could have been just—I don't know if I'd say just as happy, but I could certainly have been happy um, being in, uh, just an M&A guy. Or candidly, going back to much earlier in my career, investor relations was a blast because after nearly 20 years of, of, of working in the FBA and it being very uh, financial planning analysis, working internal to the company to take all that experience and turn it outside and be able to work with investors and sell side analysts was a almost in really what is a sales job uh, and selling the company was, was exhilarating. And so um, there were moments I I looked back on that and said, I I could have fun doing that full time. But um, the beauty of being in the CFO role is you get to do all those things. And, um, having now done it for about seven years or so, I don't, I don't see turning back, but, but I, I've enjoyed each step along the way. The key for me is you gotta, you gotta be working with the right team of people and you've gotta like what you're doing, um, to be excited about coming to work every day. Um, for me today, that means I, I think it's now going to be the, the CFO role and the diversity that brings, but there's a lot more, to what makes for a great job, and it's more than just the breadth of what you do. It's who you work with and the business you're in and so on that, that makes it fun for me anyway.
0: So let's, uh, let's turn back that clock, that seven years when you first arrived in, in the CFO role. What yeah. is it that, that piece of advice that you wish you've had? You had all this career experience, very varied in, in different size organizations, but what is that piece of advice you wish someone uh, had given you as you entered?
1: Um, boy, oh boy, a couple things. I go back to the mistake I made in that first CFO role and didn't see the, the fundamental change in the marketplace happening. I, I would say don't – number one, don't – the one thing, I guess. You only gave me one. Um, don't focus – don't be maniacally focused on one thing. Make sure that you're, 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 you're covering all the bases every day to, to make sure that you're not going to miss something because, um, again – CFO role more than anybody else is tasked with. If anybody's got to be, you know, questioning the status quo, it it's got to be the CFO is, is number one on the list. I think. Um, um, so, you know, I would say make sure you stay diversified in how you spend your time and where you're looking, what you're looking at. And then again, despite the euphoria when your your growth rate is doubled or tripled in a given year. Make sure you spend at least a, a part of the time looking across the the, the the outlook and the marketplace and your clients and look for weaknesses and make sure that you understand what those weaknesses are telling you. And even if, in, in, in my experience, even if everything looks great, um, make sure that you go back and do that scenario planning that that we talked about earlier in the conversation and and say, but if it doesn't continue to go like it is, what am I going to do about it? And and dig into that maybe a little bit more than the, the funner stuff that says, hey, if it accelerates, what do I do? you got to cover that, but it's a, it's a little bit easier to spend all your time focusing on the good news and, and overlook um, some clouds on the horizon, and you got to make sure you got that covered.
0: What personal habit do you believe has contributed to your professional success?
1: I think I've got to start off with hard willingness to work hard. Um, because without that, um, particularly in the, in, either in the difficult times or the times when you've got, you know, a, a fundamental change in the business or direction of the company, uh, hard work and, and brute force sometimes is going to be required in order to get things done. Um, and so I, I would put that um, right towards the top of the list. But again, it's beyond that, God knows, and, and the higher I've gone, the, the more I've learned this, surrounding yourself with good, smart people. Um, that complement what you do is 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 probably just as important or and, and put another way, if you don't surround yourself with smart, hardworking, creative, passionate people that complement um, your strengths and weaknesses, then you're liable to end up having to do a lot more work than you would otherwise. And so uh, I would put that up there as well.
0: Is there a book you'd recommend to aspiring finance leaders?
1: Yeah, I, I I there's a couple but I would zero in on um Patrick Lencioni and um the book titled The Advantage. But there, but he's got a theme running through all of his books that talks about basically the importance of the dysfunction the natural dysfunction of teams. I think that's titled at least one of his books and then how to deal with that and and really at the end of the day it's the power of of effective communication that there's a tendency for leadership teams to settle into a rhythm and a, a comfort zone uh, where you don't challenge your peers and you don't raise your hand and say, I disagree because um, it's just too easy in the name of team spirit to go along with the, the flow. And this is where I go back to, again, I don't mean to dwell on my, my, my failures of the past, but I, I look back at that time in the EHR company when it was so – the growth was so euphoric uh, and say somebody, and uh, I'll point at me as first in line, should have raised their hand and said, but what if, or gosh, I see some warning signs. What are we going to do about this, or should we be worried about it? Having that ability to have that direct conversation with your peers in a way that doesn't um, um, – frighten them is the wrong word – doesn't make them step back and get defensive – is critical to the success of any organization, particularly in the long haul, and um, allows those difficult conversations to happen in a way that doesn't threaten anybody, that's really easy to talk about, that's very hard to execute, and I think Lencioni's books um, do a nice job of teeing up how that ought to work and and how people can kind of develop relationships that allow them to challenge one another. And it's really, think about it, it's like professional sports teams, where you're You know you're always challenged to do better and if you if you lay back for a while um, you're gonna get left behind Um, that's the way a a management team ought to be working in many ways and um, that comes from people challenging one another and and really demanding that you do better rather than uh, kicking back and and relaxing a little bit keeps up that intensity and that uh, that passion to to get better every day
0: Finance thought leaders don't go anywhere. We're about to ask our finance leader guest for their business priorities over the next 12 months. But first, permit us 30 seconds to thank our sponsor. for that third consecutive year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middle market. Okay, our final question. What are your priorities as a finance leader over the next 12 months?
1: A couple things. One, um, and I definitely put this at the top of my list, is to... Um, spend more time with my, the people in my organization. Um, I've had a couple projects that I've worked on since I've joined that have been, become uh, all too often all-consuming, and then I break a number of the rules that I've talked about. Um, so I've got to spend more time with my people and get out and about um, and meet with folks, spend more time with acquired businesses and, and the people there, not only to get to know them, but for the for the folks that we intend and, and desperately need to keep to make sure that they understand um, the commitment that the company has got to them. Um, so number one would be the, the people. Um, I've got a great team in place um, and I can't get complacent in thinking that they're just going to stay put and stay with me forever just because I'm a nice guy. It's got to be something more than that. It's got to i got to make sure that my passion for the business translates into the passion that they have for the business as well and that they're getting not only rewarded, but but they're getting the stimulation on in their jobs in a way that makes them want to come to work every day. So that's one. Um, two, I would say given the importance of acquisitions to our business, I would go right back to where, what I talked to before, which is making sure that we continue to um, um, succeed in the, in the integration of our acquisitions and that we continue to up our game there um, because it's so critical to the – it is the key growth driver of the business and um, in terms of doing acquisitions and um, sustaining our ability and improving our ability to integrate these businesses into our own um, is a cornerstone of, of uh, the returns that we deliver to our shareholders. So, um, I've got to stay focused on that to make sure that we keep doing what we do well, and to look for ways that we can do it better. Jack Walsh, thank you for joining us. Let's see you My pleasure, Jack. I enjoy the conversation.
0: It's Jack at CFO Thought Leader. We're interested in hearing from you. We wanna find out what you would like to hear more of or less of. And so we've created an ever so short survey in order to learn from you. The survey is now available right on cfothoughtleader.com's homepage. It's open to career finance executives of every rank. Meanwhile, it's that time of year again CFO appreciation day is quickly approaching and we are once more firing up our kiln and making our CFO thought leader mug 2019 edition available to survey takers who enlist two or more of their finance team members to complete the survey. We'll mail you our also coveted CFO thought leader mug, at zero cost so visit us at cfothoughtleader.com and give us an earful we would greatly appreciate it some rules and restrictions may apply